Hey guys, Bankless Nation, welcome to another episode of State of the Nation. David, this episode, we're gonna be asking Tim Bako all about the merge. Are we there yet, Tim? Are we there yet? I think we're Are only we gonna yet, be Tim? asking Tim when merge. <laughs> That's the whole show. <laughs> um, well, definitely we need an update on the merge because I feel like some things have happened recently that uh, may, look, there were never dates for, for, for the merge, of course, but we wanna get an assessment of actually when, but also more importantly, what needs to happen between now and the merge. And Tim Bako is the person to ask about all of these things. He is a master coordinator on everything Ethereum. So uh, David, what else are we gonna discuss with Tim today? Yeah, there are just a number of test nets that we have to get through. And so we're gonna talk about each step of the test, met, test nets, uh, what needs to happen which, which, uh, with each of those. Uh, there's also, like most uh, hard forks in Ethereum happen at that block height, but not the merge. The merge happens with a different uh, pre-requisite, like pre I guess, for like what, when actually the merge happens. Uh, so there's a bunch of information to par uh, parse apart there. And also overall, there's just like a, bit, a bunch of misconceptions we wanna clear up. No, the Ethereum merge will not reduce gas fees. We're gonna talk about why people think that and why it's wrong. Uh, and also just talk about like what does happen at the merge. Like does Ether issuance go down? Uh, yes, it does, but why? Will users or apps have to do anything? Uh, can you run a node without staking? What other popular misconceptions there are? And then, of course, what happens after the merge? So after we ask Tim Baker when merge, uh, we will be asking all about the misconceptions and the things on the horizon beyond the merge as well. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about the road to the merge. Uh, so that's what comes up next. Awesome. All right. And also, uh, our friends over at MetaMask have wanted us to tell you about the buy button inside of the MetaMask wallet. I'm a super user of MetaMask. It's fantastic. Use the extension, use MetaMask in mobile. But David, I haven't noticed until recently that there's actually a buy button mm -hmm. inside of both the, the browser extension and inside of the mobile wallet. What does that buy wallet unlock for people? Yeah, for me, I use it uh, when I need to top up a wallet uh, for gas payments for example, it's nice because you can use that buy button in MetaMask with your credit card or debit card, or it can hook also straight into your bank account. Uh, but if you just need to quickly get some like uh, some ETH into your wallet, uh, the MetaMask buy button is super convenient. It has a bunch of just integrations with your bank accounts via different providers. Uh, and so uh, like I believe there's Wire, there's Transact, there's MoonPay. Uh, and so it's probably the fastest way to go from a credit card or a bank account into Ether into your wallet for whatever reason. Maybe you need to buy a quick uh, NFT on Open maybe you need some gas in a brand new wallet and you don't want to dock yourself. Uh, it's on both the, the desktop version. So like listeners who are watching this on YouTube right now, you can open up MetaMask and see that little buy button. Uh, you probably didn't really think about that too often, but it's also on MetaMask mobile as well, uh, being probably the fastest way to get from fiat into uh, crypto. Uh, you know, buy buttons. We like buy buttons more than we like sell buttons, don't we, Ryan? Yeah, you know what? It always makes me sad whenever I pay uh, get for gas fees in ETH because I'm like, oh, I spent, I spent ETH. I don't want to spend ETH. And so it, it's nice to have a way to automatically like buy that back right inside of the, the wallet extension. Right. You know, if there was like an auto buyback option, I'd probably just click that and have MetaMask replace all of the uh, gas fees I spent on it's ETH. But uh, maybe that's kind of possible point. to paying for gas with your credit card. There you go. There you go. Uh, David, before we get into the episode with Tim, want to ask you the question I always ask, which is what is the state of the nation today? I'm gonna go ahead and guess the state of the nation is annoying, Ryan. Uh, my answer, my answer <laughs> was previously we are verging, as in we are on the verge of the merge. But since like everyone is asking Tim when merge, when merge, I'm gonna go ahead and say, Ryan, that the state of the nation is really annoying for people like Tim Bako, who's always bombarded with the question when merge. Uh, we're about to ask him the same question, so we're the annoying ones uh, this week, Ryan. So yeah, state of the nation, Ryan, is annoying. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of like the, the kids in the backseat of the car, right? Always asking dad and, you know, Tim's in that place. But uh, maybe we'll save that question toward to a little bit towards the end. I think it is getting close, though, David. Mm -hmm. I think we are on the verge of the merge mm -hmm. uh, regardless. It's just like when exactly will that happen? And I think that's not even the most important question, right? An important question, of course, is how do we make sure we get this thing right? Mm -hmm. Because it would be very bad if, um, you know, we... We did this a little bit too early before all of the boxes were checked and before we felt uh, secure as a community. So we'll talk about all of those things with Tim Bako. You wanna say something and then we'll get to sponsors, David? Yeah, I'll say everyone's asking when merge, but no one is asking about how's the merge doing. And so we're going to ask Tim Bako how the merge is doing right after we get through some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. 
RocketPool is your friendly, decentralized Ethereum staking protocol. You can stake your ETH with RocketPool and get our ETH in return, allowing you to stake your ETH and use it in DeFi at the same time. You can get 4% on your ETH by staking it with RocketPool, but you can get even more by running a node. RocketPool is the only staking provider that allows anyone to permissionlessly join their network of validating nodes. Running a RocketPool node is easier to set up than running a solo node, and you only need 16 ETH to get started. Why would you do this? You get an extra 15% staking commission on the pooled ETH, so your APY is boosted. So if you're bullish ETH staking, you can increase your APY and get some extra tokens by adding your node to the decentralized Rocket Pool network, which currently has over a thousand independent validators. It's yield farming, but with Ethereum nodes. You can get started at rocketpool.net and also join the Rocket Pool community in their Discord. You can find me hanging out there sometimes in the chat, so I'll see you there. MakerDAO is the OG DeFi protocol. The MakerDAO produces DAI, the industry's most battle-tested and resilient stablecoin. Using Maker, you don't need to sell your collateral if you need liquidity. Instead, you can spin up a Maker Vault and use your collateral to mint DAI directly. With Maker, the power to mint new money is in your hands. The Maker protocol is extremely hardened and operated by one of the most experienced DAOs in existence. They've been here since the beginning, they've seen it all, and so you can mint DAI with the assurance that your collateral is safe. Soon, Maker will be present on all chains and L2s, so minting DAI can take place on Oasis.app, Zerion, Zapper, or any other DeFi protocol that you use. Follow Maker on Twitter, at MakerDAO, and learn from the oldest and most resilient DAO in existence. Aave is the leading decentralized liquidity protocol, and now Aave V3 is here. Aave V3 has powerful new features to enable you to get the most out of DeFi, including isolation mode, which allows for many more markets to be launched with more exotic collateral types, and also efficiency mode, which allows for higher loan-to-value ratios, and of course, portals, allowing users to port their Aave position across all of the networks that Aave operates on, like Polygon, Phantom, Avalanche, Arbitrum, Optimism, and Harmony. The beautiful thing about Aave is that it's completely completely open source, decentralized, and governed by its community, enabling a truly bankless future for us all. To get your first crypto collateralized loan, get started at Aave.com, that's A-A-B-E.com, and also check out the Aave Protocol Governance Forums to see what more than 100,000 DAO members are all robbing about at governance.ave.com. Hey guys, we are back here with uh, Tim Bako talking all about the merge today. It's a it's a merge check-in. I think we're probably going to have a few of these episodes on Bankless, but of course you guys know Tim. He's been on the Bankless podcast a number of times. He runs the core protocol meetings called the All Core Devs Call, that essential ACD call that you may have heard about for Ethereum. This is where all the devs come together. They discuss what to do next with Ethereum. They, they get input from all corners of the ecosystem, protocol researchers and client teams and everyone else. And Tim, of course, coordinates and is a liaison for a lot of that activity. Uh, and Tim also spends a lot of time talking to the outside world about the Ethereum roadmap. So he's the guy we can ask about the merge. Tim, how are you doing, man? It's good to have you back. Thanks. Yeah, glad to be back. Um, so aside from yourself, I'm, I'm curious, Tim, who else can we ask the question of, of when merge? <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, right. cause we would be doing this weekly if we could. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the reason I'm happy to come on here is that this way researchers and devs are not spending their times, uh, answering these <laughs> questions and, and they can actually work on the merge. Um, so I, yeah, uh, they can obviously give you an answer, but hopefully they can spend their time working on it instead. Um, I mean. Trent from the EF is another really good person for this. Like he 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 just likes me. Like follows all of this and and has a bit more like a community role. Um, Danny can also give you some some really good answers, but he's like heads down writing all these specs. So again, um, you, you you don't want him to. To, to spend too much of his time doing this stuff. Well, yeah. We got another name. That's good. So Tim yeah. and Trent. And then yep. this is a message to the community. Every time you ask a dev or researcher when merge, it delays the merge by another 10 minutes. Okay. Exactly. So we need to stop doing that. We need to, uh, you only, know, it comes only here. Us, only Bankless Bankless can do it. <laughs> And we can only do it of, of Tim and, uh, and Trent now. Mm -hmm. um, but like, so if the imagery here is like, we are kind of the annoying kids in the back of the car asking the drivers, the developers, you know, uh, when when merge, when's this all going to happen? I, I guess the next follow-up question is maybe more broadly is what mile marker are we on? Okay. So if uh, the road to the merge is a hundred miles long, what mile mark marker are we on at this point in time? Are we, are we, you know, 70, are we 80? Are we like, you know, 90, 95, something like this. <laughs> right. Um, it's, it's weird. Cause it's not like a straight road, right? Like it's a winding road and <laughs> 
<laughs> and there's some some turns that get added as we just like drive your answer, on it. huh, Tim? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I I don't have a, a a great like answer. I mean, like at, at a high level, like you know, we test nets are the last thing we do before going to mainnet. And tomorrow we're forking the first of of the three test nets we plan to fork. Um, we did so, and, and that's Robston, just to be to be clear. Um, and we are forking Robston a bit earlier than we otherwise would um, because basically we're asking a bit more of node operators and stakers in this upgrade than we are in previous ones. Um, so in, in previous uh, upgrades on say the execution layer or even on the beacon chain, the only thing people usually have to do is download a new version of the client that they're running and that's it, they're good to go. It takes like five minutes and, and that's it. Um, this one's a bit more com complicated. So if you're running on the beacon chain or on the kind of execution chain or proof of work chain today, you now need to download this other client, which you may not have had before. You need to configure it to work with your current client. Um, and there's a couple extra parameters you need to set. And so because this is like a bit more complicated than, than previous upgrades, we figured it would be good to run Robson first um, as, a, as a way for people to kind of test drive this process. And uh, we do plan to deprecate the Robson testnet kind of shortly after the merge. So even if you know it doesn't go exactly as smoothly as, as we'd want, um, we're 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 fine with that. Um, because this way, you know, like home stakers, for example, or infrastructure providers can run through the merge on Robston, figure out if anything went wrong, we can fix all of that, and then we'll hopefully have like a much smoother deployment on like Gordy, uh, which would be like our, our next testnet. Um, but but at a high level, you know, it's we want to run through Robson, then there's two more testnets, Gordy and Sepolia. And once those are done, we'd move to mainnet. Uh, the big caveat is obviously if we found a big issue at any point during that, then we'll want to pause and, and, and fix that. Um, yeah, so in terms of steps, there's not that many steps, but it's, it's very hard to tell you how long each of those steps can take. Um, yeah. And each testnet is actually a proof of work testnet. And so every testnet is going to transition into proof of stake. Uh, and so um, is that correct? Uh, kind of. So two of the three are proof of work. So Robston is and, and Sepolia is. The Gordy testnet actually runs under what's called proof of authority. And that's basically we whitelist a bunch of nodes and we tell them you can produce a block at this at this time and we just rotate through them. Um, so they'll all move to proof of stake. Uh, but there's only two of the three that are moving that are moving from proof of work and, and Robston is one of them. Yeah. Okay, and so what are we testing with every single testnet, right? E each testnet has yeah. uh, various like variables, and and of course the merge has a bunch of variables. With it has the consensus layer clients, it has the uh, uh, execution layer clients. Uh, as we let's let's start with Gorley, the one that's coming up here in a couple days. What are we actually testing when we when we merge a testnet? Right, that's that's a good question. Um, so Robson is the one that's tomorrow uh, to be me. here. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, so. What we're testing is basically whether you know the code and client works as expected. Um, but for the and that's usually what we test on test nets. It's like you know does this thing work as we'd expect in conditions that are more or less similar to mainnet. Um, but for the merge, we've actually done this quite a lot of times before uh, with these shadow forks that we've run. Um, so these shadow forks were kind of forks that would happen on testnet or mainnet, but there would only have a small number of nodes that's controlled by testing and client teams that would fork. Um, so we've, we've done those, I think about 10 times so far. And, and so we have high confidence that like, you know, things work. Uh, and, and we wanted to have that extra level of confidence because the merge is such a like complex change. Um, so I think the thing that we're looking at for testnets even more today than just like the code working is whether the community like manages to like smoothly upgrade. Um, and, and, and basically it's like, you know, once it's happened, you know, are the validators able to run through the commands? Is it clear uh, what type of tutorials and documentation do we need to write for them? Um, so I think that's like the additional parts that like we're really paying a lot of attention to here. Um, and we know that this first one probably won't be perfect just because of how kind of new and different it is. Um, but then hopefully for the next one, which, which will probably be Gordy, um, we can have fixed a bunch of those issues, have better documentation uh, so that it goes smoother and, and people kind of have many runs uh, to, to try things on before it actually happens on mainnet. And when it does happen on mainnet, then they have really high confidence that their setup is, is, is correct.
So this is not only a test net on of the software, of the protocol, of the code. It's also a test net for humans, right? This is also yeah. social coordination in addition to actual yes. code coordination. Yes. And, and I feel it's like it's more than 50% the social part in this case because we've gotten quite good at doing just the technical part, you know, uh, kind of in a more closed fashion. So um, we've really improved that over the past year. But uh, yeah, obviously, we still want to make sure that everyone in the community is able to run a node and and uh, they, uh, they uh, yeah, they, they're comfortable when the merge happens on that network. Okay, so we've got three test nets that we are going to run a mock merge on. It'll be a real merge for the yeah. actual test nets. Um, yeah. uh, and then after we merge uh, Robson, which is kind of the one that's actually coming up in a couple of days, like, do we just need to like sit and wait and watch Robson in this post-merge state for a while? What happens after the Robson merge for the Robson network? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, on Robson, we'll, we will definitely sit and, and wait and watch it. I do suspect that'll be pretty uneventful because we've done all these shadow forks. I think the thing that we need to then wait for a bit more is um, the, the code that clients have today works, but it's still not quite as polished as, we, as we'd like it to be on mainnet. And that's really the thing where I think we'll probably move to the next test nets once we just have like a bit more of a polished product from client teams. And this is stuff like you know fixing some edge case issues, having some better documentation, having some better APIs to interact with the network. So things like that. Um, so that when we do run to Gordy and Sepolia, um, it might not be 100% what it will be on mainnet in terms of code, but it'll be you know 90 plus percent, if not like 95 or, or 99. So you want it to be quite close. And, and um, again, you know, it, it, it might happen that Robston has a issue uh, on the network and we'll obviously watch that and monitor it and, and fix it if it comes up um, but because we had all these shadow forks um, i think we're we have higher confidence that like the transition should should actually go quite well um, the other thing that we'll also see on robson is robson has like way more integrations with products you know like etherscan supports it metamask supports it a bunch of applications have their like core test deployment on it um, and even though we've we've done this also with uh, another testnet that we launched called Kiln, um, it'll just be useful to see like, this is like a, I don't know, kind of top tier testnet in a way that's really broadly supported. Are there any weird tooling or integration issues uh, that aren't directly code by, caused by like the code of the merge, but just like, because things are changing and this tool did not plan for it. And that's definitely something we wanna, um, and that's definitely something we wanna be aware of, yeah. So say it's Robston merge, merge Day, which is, again, coming in a, in a couple days. What, what are you going to be looking at? Like, what data are you trying to collect? Or is it more of like a you kind of know it when you see it kind of a moment? Yeah, uh, so a, a couple of things. So one is just like, does the network finalize? Is it generally stable? We have kind of a list of a bunch of, uh, of metrics that we look at. So like, you know, that's like the baseline. You know, did it work? Um, two, the thing that I will look at is just like, are there some big services that have issues? You know, say Etherscan stopped working. Uh, that would be that would be bad, and we want to figure out why. Um, so, so that's the other big thing. And then th three is it's a bit more qualitative, but it's just like do do people did people manage to upgrade? You know, like for example, you go into Eatstaker Discord. Is it like is it like chaos, or are people generally like okay with with what happened? Um, and I think. Um, Again, like assuming the technical stuff is, 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 is correct and there's no issues there, then I suspect most of the work is about um, how do you, um, yeah, how do you just make it easy for people to, to, to use this software? Yeah. So is the merge ready? Isn't really like a binary yes or no. It's more of just like a vibe of like how much chaos is there post testnet merge and like, do we feel good about that? Right. And, and one thing that's worth highlighting is the, the reason for that is the Ethereum network is pretty resilient to things being imperfect, right? Like it's designed to assume that things are not going well. Um, so this is why like we can have these shadow forks and they can go well. And even imagine a, a world where like proof of work is banned tomorrow or like all the miners disappear, they attack the chain. We could probably merge with the software that exists today and the network would be, would be fine. Um, but the question is like, then we, we need to spend all this time fixing all these edge cases issues on a network that's live in production with like hundreds of billions at stake. Um, and we'd rather avoid that, right? It's like, if we can find an issue 
before having it on mainnet rather than after, it's it's much better to fix it before, um, okay. even though the network could probably sustain like a lot of different types of, of these issues. Um, and and I guess the reason for that is just like if you if you take a bit of a like bigger view of like the entire Ethereum roadmap, you know, if we don't just want to ship the merge, you know, we have a ton of things we want to ship after. Um, and say we ship the merge like in two weeks, but then spent the next six months fixing a bunch of bugs that are like trickier to fix because they're already on mainnet and stuff like that. It would just slow down everything else we have to ship after. Um, and so it's, yeah, this is why, even though it can like appear like it's ready and it's like, we're not looking for like much or like things don't necessarily break super loudly. Um, we do want to like zoom in and find those small issues where things break or are not perfect. Um, so that, yeah, when the transition happens on mainnet, hopefully there's, you know, there's kind of nothing to do after and we just, we just move on to the next thing. Yeah, the rule of thumb measure twice, cut once comes to mind. The idea is that like we could merge yes. right now if we wanted to, but we would perhaps have a lot of collateral uh, uh, collateral damage as a result of that. And so what we are doing now is we are preemptively fixing that collateral damage before we move, merge so that the whole entire thing is smooth rather than, than rough. Um, Tim, Tim yeah. what is like a catastrophic thing that you, that you are worried about? Like what keeps you up at night with like the Robson merges uh, and or testnet merges that you definitely do not want to see in the actual live merge? Um. So luckily, like we've hit a lot of them. Uh, I think, so one thing that's, it's, it's a bit broader than the merge, but it is this idea of client diversity. Um, so I think we've done, we've done really good work on the consensus layer side with regards to client diversity. Uh, Prism is now well under two thirds and, and, and that's really healthy. Um, on the execution layer side, we still have like a super strong dominance by Geth. Um, and one thing that does keep me up at night is if we go to the merge and that stays correct, um, if there are cases where like the majority of the network is using Geth and there's a bug in Geth, um, that would be really bad. And you can imagine something like, you know, imagine that Geth has a bug which prints even just one ether or deletes one ether that it shouldn't, right? It really it affects kind of the 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 whole purpose of this chain, which is you know to have like a, a immutable ledger that people agree on based on on a specific set of rules. So if Geth had an issue that like broke some of those rules um, and it was run by a majority of nodes, then just like on a, on the CL side, uh, that would be really bad for the stakers running those clients. Um, and it would lead, it would put the Ethereum community in like a very awkward spot of having to choose between like, do we bail out, you know, potentially the majority of the chain because, uh, you know, most people are using that or do we actually enforce the correct protocol rules even though it might harm the majority of the stake on the network um so that's that's one thing that keeps me up at night like i definitely want people to try and like use other clients um and and this is literally the best opportunity we'll have in ethereum's history to reset the balance uh of this um and this is maybe something people don't know but um it's almost not as much a problem right now on, on the proof of work Ethereum because all the mining is done with Geth. Um, so that means that if there was a bug in Geth, very weirdly, like all the miners would agree on it because they all run Geth because of Flashbots. Um, whereas after the merge, Flashbots has updated their infrastructure to be client agnostic. So you don't, you know, it, it doesn't have to be Geth. You can, you can run any execution layer client. Um, but that's the big thing. It's like, if, if people keep using Geth as a majority client on the network um, and there is an issue with it, uh, regardless of when after the merge, it doesn't have to be right after the merge, um, that can put us in a really bad position. So um, that does keep me up at night. So, so uh, I'm I'm kind of getting this uh, this imagery of like a, you know a school play, right? Where everyone's rehearsing for this school play, right? And uh, people have memorized their lines, and there's all sorts of these other parties. You know, there's kind of the the stage crew. You know, there's the scenery, there's the spotlight. All of these these pieces need to uh, come together. And what you're doing now with these test nets, Tim, is uh, you guys are doing dress rehearsals essentially, and yep. so. You know, there's going to be, there shouldn't just be one dress rehearsal. There should be multiple dress rehearsals. And each of these test nets provides another opportunity for a run through of the play where everyone's lines are rehearsed and everyone knows, you know, what spot to be and that sort of thing. And so the first dress rehearsal is happening uh, within the next 48 hours or so, the uh, Robson uh, test net, as, as you mentioned. Um, and, and so I, I'm kind of curious as we think about these, these dress rehearsals too. David asked you the question of, um, 
you know, what keeps you up at night, but what sorts of things do you anticipate could go wrong in one of these dress rehearsals? Like what, what's the analogy of like, you know, the lead actor forgets his lines or, you know, this actress yeah. is not in the right spot or forgets to come out from backstage. What sorts of things might happen or is it completely unpredictable? So I think, yeah, if you look at the dress rehearsals, it's like the people don't show up. This is like the bad thing. <laughs> and, 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 and imagine, you know, I'll take a, an example, like with Etherscan, for example. Um, actually, Etherscan is a bit different because by default, they'll be included because they follow the chain. But let's take uh, someone like Lido, right? Like Lido today is a pool that's just live on mainnet in the beacon chain. And I'll pick on them because they actually have showed up since like the first testnet. And, and I know I know they're actually on top of this. But imagine a world where Lido doesn't show up. Um, you know, they don't, they don't get any of the blog posts or they see them and they don't care. Um, and then we we have the merge happen on testnets and, you know, it looks like everything's all right. Uh, and then it comes on mainnet. And for some reason, Lido operators like mess up their upgrades. Um, and either that means that they're like going offline or like at worst, they're signing the wrong things. So they get either like a, a penalty because they're offline or they get slashed, um, which is really bad if even in the case of lido because it's like a big part of the network if all of their operators were offline um then it might actually affect like the the finalization of the chain which would also be really bad um so i think this is like you know one example just like if large projects like don't pay attention and don't do anything it can affect obviously like their end users but also like if they are stakers or, or like infrastructure providers that stakers use, it might affect like a large part of the chain and, and, and lead to like uh, disruptions there. And, and this is kind of like on proof of work, right? Like when we have these upgrades on proof of work, you want all the miners to upgrade and you want like the software that miners use to also work and, and not have bugs. Um, so I think that's like the thing. It's like if people just like ignore completely these 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 uh, blog posts and announcements that we make, and they just you know get the mainnet and then do it wrong because they haven't practiced. Um, that could be bad. Um, and like I'll give you another example is like for example uh, at the merge, transaction fees become available to validators, right? Um, so if you're if you're a validator, you can put in an ETH address, and, and when you create a block, that's where the transaction fees go. Uh, but imagine something like Coinbase or Kraken, which has a staking pool. It might not be as simple for them, right? Because they have, it's not actually their ETH that they're staking, they're staking all their users' ETH. So I suspect for them, it's a bit more involved than just for like a solo validator who will just plug in their ledger address, right? Like they'll just say, okay, send the funds there. If you're Coinbase or, or Kraken, you might want to think about like, okay, what are we actually doing with these funds? Are we compounding them? You know, like if we get all these transaction fees, should we just give them to users now? Should we just compound them? Um, and so that's the type of stuff where like, you want them to have thought about these problems and have a solution for them weeks or months in advance. You don't want them to read the blog post from mainnet and be like, oh, oh man, we're going to get these transaction fees now. What do we do with them? Um, so it's, yeah, I think it's really just about like paying attention and like, and, and similarly, you know, one last one is like, if none of the solo stakers see it, like, you know, if one solo staker misses the memo, Ethereum will be fine. But it's like, as a community, it's super important that we reach that part of the community and that they're aware and that, you know, it's not just big projects and infrastructure providers updating, but like if, if solo stakers can't upgrade and none of them have upgraded, that's also, you know, super, super bad for Ethereum. So yeah, that's, that's what so I'm it's, fear of. It is. Yeah. It's, so it's just like a dress rehearsal, right? There, there, are, yeah. there are lots of different kind of active actors and, you know, participators and, you know, there's, there's kind of a choir, maybe there's a band and, you know, if you get one or two instruments that are off or a minor character doesn't show up in costume, like who cares? But if you have someone like, like Lido and they're scheduled to, uh, to sing their solo, at you know midway through the show you know and that doesn't go well they don't come out on stage and you got a real problem so the uh the dress rehearsal the objective of that is to kind of just run through it all and like it's funny because like how do you know that you are ready for showtime it's like well when you have a few successful dress rehearsals under your belt and everyone knows where to be and then then you're kind of ready to go to the show so it is as david said earlier it seems to be more like a vibe right like oh we've done this a few times we're yeah. feeling good about it everyone's now confident and we have this rough consensus that we are ready to go but also at some point you do need to be like we need to ship guys and we yes. are ready to go because you could spend time in just dress rehearsal over and over and over again. And then the audience is never going to actually be able to see the show and you could get stuck in that too. 
I, so I guess this is just a judgment call. Is this rough consensus as far as where it went to ship? And maybe that explains why it's so difficult to nail down a date. Yeah, I think so. And I think the thing, the thing that like at least client teams look at is like, are they comfortable in the software that they're shipping? Um, and there, you know, we get feedback from users and, and, you know, both large and small on that. I think, you know, the thing that we definitely, like if, if like a large or even like there's something that breaks for a bunch of small users comes up, then like, yeah, we might choose to delay things there to, to make sure it happens smoothly. Um, but that's different than, you know, say Infura was not ready for the merge um, because they don't pay attention. Um, then that's kind of on them at some point. It's like, you know, if they run a business, um, it's it's on them to, to monitor this stuff. And again, I'll pick on Infura because I know they actually follow this stuff super closely and, and, and are, are quite involved. But like, you know, if if they kind of tuned out for six months and then they're like, oh, wow, the merge is happening. Um, I, we, we would not block it on them. Like, I mean, you know, we, and, and hopefully they, they're aware and, and they can prepare. And, and at the end of the day, you know, if Infura, is not ready for the merge. It is it is like a bad user experience for a lot of people using Ethereum, but it's not a threat to the protocol, you know. And that means that say again, imagine you know, Infura's not not uh, ready for the merge, and like I don't know, say OpenSea is an Infura user. Um, well, they may like not like Infura as much anymore as like a you know a service provider, and they might change something else. And like that's that's all right. Uh, so it becomes more of like a you know quality of product concern there. Um, and again, I, I, I'm not saying this because I don't think Infra is ready. Like I think, you know, they're very active and, and on top of this. So just an easy, easy example to pick on. Well, Tim, I'm going to have to ask you the question when merge, but I'm going to ask that question right after we get to some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Arbitrum is an Ethereum layer two scaling solution that's going to completely change how we use DeFi and NFTs. Over 300 projects have already deployed to Arbitrum and the DeFi and NFT ecosystems are growing rapidly. Some of the coolest and newest NFT collections have chosen Arbitrum as their home, all the while DeFi protocols continue to see increased usage and liquidity. Using Arbitrum has never been easier, especially with the ability to deposit directly into Arbitrum through all the exchanges, including Binance, FTX, Huobi, and Crypto.com. Once inside, you'll notice Arbitrum increases Ethereum speed by orders of magnitude for a fraction of the cost of the average gas fee. If you're a developer who wants low gas fees and instant transactions for your users, visit arbitrum.io slash developer to start building your dApp on Arbitrum. If you're a DGen, many of your favorite dApps on Ethereum are already on Arbitrum with many moving over every day. Go to bridge.arbitrum.io now to start bridging over your ETH and other tokens in order to experience DeFi and NFTs in the way it was always meant to be. Fast, cheap, secure, and friction-free. The Layer 2 era is upon us. Ethereum's Layer 2 ecosystem is growing every day, and we need bridges to be fast and efficient in order to live a Layer 2 life. Across is the fastest, cheapest, and most secure cross-chain bridge. With Across, you don't have to worry about the long wait times or high fees to get your assets to the chain of your choice. Assets are bridged and available for use almost instantaneously. Across bridges are powered by UMA's optimistic oracle to securely transfer tokens from Layer 2 back to Ethereum. A token proposal is being deliberated as we speak in the Across forum, where community members will decide on the token distribution. You can have your part of Across's story by joining the Discord and becoming a co-founder and helping to design the fair, fair launch of Across. If you want to bridge your assets quickly and securely, go to across.to to bridge your assets between Ethereum, Optimism, Arbitrum, or Boba networks. The Brave browser is the user-first browser for the Web3 internet with over 50 million monthly active users. Control your digital footprint with built-in privacy and ad blocking. Inside the Brave browser, you'll find the Brave wallet, the first secure crypto wallet built natively inside of a Web3 crypto browser. Web3 is freedom from big tech and Wall Street, more control and better privacy. But there's a weak point in Web3, your crypto wallet. The Brave wallet is different. Brave wallet is built natively inside the Brave browser, no extension required, which gives the Brave wallet an extra level of security versus other wallets. With the Brave wallet, you can buy, store, send, and swap your crypto assets assets, and you can even manage your NFTs and connect to other wallets and DeFi apps, all from the security of the best privacy browser on the market. Whether you're new to crypto or a seasoned pro, it's time to switch to the Brave wallet. Download Brave at brave.com slash bankless and click the wallet icon to get started. All right, Bankless Nation, we are back and we've got this handy little graphic. Shout out to Trent Van Epps for putting this graphic together. And this really shows the timeline of the dependencies between now where we are on the very far left with that we are here indication to where we're going on the very far right 
podcast listeners, it might be useful to open up the YouTube if you want to look at the at the uh, the graphic here. Uh, so just to navigate this thing on the t the blue line, the blue line up top of the, of the three lines is off chain. These are social layer consensus choices that are being made, uh, and also some test net merges as well, which we've talked about. And then below we have the green consensus layer, and then the red execution layer. And uh, at the end of this graphic is when these things merge. Hence the merge. Uh, and so, Tim, I'm wondering if you can walk us through this this graphic. We've already talked about the testnet client releases, Robson, Sepolia, and Gorley. Uh, and that's what is in the very near term. Robson goes live literally in the next 48 hours. Uh, but then we have some uh, remaining steps. Can you walk us through the remaining steps between now and the merge? Right. Yeah. So this assumes all the testnets go go live. We just talked about that. Um, so it's worth hitting on like when we get to this next step. You know, terminal diffic terminal total difficulty, like what that is and why why it matters and how the merges may be a bit different from other uh, other Ethereum upgrades. Um, so generally, when we have an upgrade on, on the Ethereum proof of work chain, we use a block number. Uh, so we say, as of this number, um, you know, the new rules apply to the chain. Um, and this is kind of easy for clients to handle generally, because even though there's forks on the network, what happens is like, you know, even across multiple forks, well, if you're the block before the upgrade happens, you don't have the new rules. And if you're the block, the block after, then you do have the new rules. And it's easy to triage between that. So even if you had imagine like three different proof of work forks kind of competing for which one is the valid one, well, you just activate the fork on all three um, up to a when the certain height is hit. Um, and then eventually, you know, those forks resolve. There's a single canonical chain, but it doesn't really matter that like on the two kind of side chains, you've like activated the hard fork as well. Um, it just means that like the transactions in those blocks were either valid or invalid. Um, the thing with the merge is that um, we want to make sure that like the merge is only triggered uh, on like one major chain, right? Like we want it to be pretty clear that like, this is where the merge is happening. Um, so instead of using a block number, uh, we're using the total difficulty of the chain. So for those who aren't familiar with proof of work, uh, every block on a proof of work chain has a specific difficulty value, like how hard is it to mine it? And if you sum all those values together, you get the total difficulty of a chain. Um, so it's like, how hard was it to mine block one plus block two plus block three all the way to, to the head? Um, and this is like a really costly measure to fake because you know if you want to increase the difficulty of the chain you actually have to mine it uh and and um whereas if you wanted to increase the block number of the chain what you could do is you could start a fork where you like really slowly drive the difficulty down to zero and then mine a bunch of blocks when the difficulty is zero and and you'd have like a really high block number on a chain that doesn't have a lot of proof of work difficulty um, so by using this terminal total difficulty, what we're saying is that when we hit a specific amount of proof of work on the chain is when we would trigger the merge. Um, and that means that if you want to create like an alternate chain there, um, you would have to spend a ton of money to do so. And there's not really an incentive to do that. Um, and so we, we, we choose a specific total difficulty value, which we call the terminal total difficulty value. And once we've exceeded that on proof of work, that's when the actual transition from proof of work to proof of stake gets triggered. Um, and if your listeners are like super familiar with proof of work, they'll realize that this also doesn't fully guarantee you don't get reorgs um, because you could get like short-term reorgs like we have on mainnet basically with uncle blocks. Um, but those are fine because basically what would happen is if you hit the TTD, um, and there's like three blocks which satisfy kind of the condition. Uh, and the condition is like that block's total difficulty is bigger than the TTD, but its parents isn't. So it's like literally the only block that's like exceeded the threshold. So if you have a couple different blocks, like competing uncle blocks, you would simply have the validator pick one of those and they'd all be valid blocks. So, you know, they have kind of a, a choice over it, but they don't, there's not the risk that like, somebody then reveals an other completely different chain, you know, that was built months ahead, months uh, in the past and has a higher difficulty. Like basically if that were to happen, it's kind of the same threat model, let's say a 51% attack on Ethereum. And if we assume that proof of work is secure, um, you know, that's not something we should, we should hit with. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll pause here. I see you have a question, David. 
I, I think just the summary, I, I think that's correct, is that this TTD mechanism makes the actual event of the merge unpredictable, which makes it impossible to coordinate an attack around. Is that a, a good summary? Uh, it's not that it's unpredictable. It's that it's very costly to fake. Right. So basically, if you wanted to hit the TTD on an alternative fork, you need to spend as much hash rate as you would do to mine the Ethereum mainnet. Right. And so that's and and while you're doing that, you're basically foregoing uh, your yeah yeah that you could get on mainnet. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's kind of the thing. It's just like. It's really costly to fake, and you don't really get anything from that attack except like messing with the merge. Um, so, um, and similarly, that cost today is is on the order of like doing your fifty one percent attack on Ethereum, which like you could actually get more out of. You know, if you're thinking about like ROI on your on your attack. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just like a a, a higher security threshold uh, and, and and harder for people to tamper with. So this is the reason, Tim, you guys are using a, a TTD rather than a block number here, right? That's so correct. I guess yeah. just to zoom out on this on this graphic for people on YouTube or the podcast, uh, we talked about the dress rehearsals, the te testnet client releases, Ropeston and, and the others that is happening now. Um, the TTD date will be chosen or the TTD, the total difficulty uh, number will be actually chosen on all core dev call after the successful dress rehearsals happen. And that's and like there committing are two... to a live performance, basically. It's like the right. dress rehearsals are done. We are going to make a live performance happen. We're going to have our first big show, our only big show. Uh, and we get to and... put up the posters. Yes, we, we get, get to, to say up, yes. at yes. TTD X, what, yes. what will that be? Is that sort of a hash rate? I'm not used to thinking in uh, as dates is hash rate. So, yeah, so yeah, yeah. So at TTDX, and, and you can map that back to time as precisely okay. as a block number. So like, right. you know, with block numbers, we we usually have like a range of days, like we can't predict it on the day. Exactly. But like, we, we can do the same with... with okay, so we'll have, we'll have a range of range time. And then <laughs> yeah. we have uh, two client releases. One, of course, is the consensus layer, which is the beacon chain. That's yeah. the proof of stake chain that's happening right now. And the other, of course, is the execution layer, which yeah. is the existing kind of geth and existing Ethereum mainnet that's all proof of work. Uh, and then it sounds like there's this period that we see on the bottom of this graphic called pre-activation for both yes. of those client releases, both uh, Bellatrix, which is the consensus, the beacon chain, and Paris, which is the existing Ethereum proof-of-work mainnet. Uh, that gets pre-activated, and then there's some time period between the pre-activation and the actual time when the, the TTD number hits. Any idea on like what that... that time range will be between pre-activation and the you know the TTD? Are we talking like hours? Are we talking days? Uh, we're talking probably like small number of weeks. And, weeks, um, okay. Yeah, and, and maybe just to take a step back and explain like why you need to run through this whole process. Um, so like you mentioned, like Bellatrix is the name of the changes that happen on the beacon chain, which kind of allow it to speak to the, the current proof of work chain. And Paris is kind of the, the mirror image of that. It's the change we need to do on execution clients, which allow them to use the beacon chain rather than proof of work to come to consensus. Um, and so we need those releases to be out and, and like those changes to be active on the network before the transition happens. And, and what that means in practice is like when those changes go live, uh, there'll be like a hard fork on the beacon chain like there was for Altair. And what happens after that hard fork is the beacon chain is just pinging the proof of work chain and saying like, have you hit TTD yet? Have you hit TTD yet? Have you hit TTD yet? Um, and so it kind of knows to wait and it obviously knows what to do once, once uh, the TTD is hit. Um, and so basically because we, uh, we want to give people time to like upgrade their nodes and whatnot um, before the TTD is actually hit, um, that's why we want to have, choose a TTD value have like this hard fork. So give people a couple of weeks for, to upgrade their nodes for the hard fork, even though the hard fork doesn't really change the functionality of either until the, the TTD is hit. Um, and then give a couple more weeks for the TTD to actually be hit. And the reason there is that you don't want the TTD to be hit before the hard fork happens. Um, because that would mean that like the beacon chain and the execution chain aren't even aware that they should be listening for a TTD. So like 
nothing is going to happen on the TTD. Um, and the worst case scenario is if the hard for if the TTD was hit, kind of when only some of the nodes, but not all, have upgraded, then you'd have this weird case where like. Uh, you know, some nodes are following the hard fork, other nodes have no idea it's happening. And this is why having like some buffers there just give people, gives people plenty of time uh, to know what's happening and to run the upgrades. Um, but at the same time, also it's worth noting, um, because TTD is a function of difficulty on proof of work, um, we don't want to predict it too far out because if the hash rate changes a ton, uh, which we could expect to happen because the merge is happening and people might sell their GPUs. Uh, it might take us a longer time to hit it. Um, so this is why like a small number of weeks is probably the sweet spot where like it lets people enough of a, it gives people enough of a heads up to upgrade. Um, but also, you know, imagine that like the hash rate starts dropping Well, maybe instead of hitting it in two weeks, we hit it in three weeks, but we don't want to go from like hitting it in eight weeks to 16 weeks. Like that would be really bad. Um, so, but but that 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 once we have the uh, preactivation of of Paris and Bellatrix, uh, both yeah. both those clients, then it's just basically a countdown. It's it's yeah. a shot clock to yeah. uh, TTD it's actually hitting. And I'm sh it's a drum. I'm sure we'll have yeah. charts. I'm sure we'll have websites. Yeah. I'm sure we'll have you yeah. on like three or four times. I'm sure Tim <laughs> during the course of that, where we're like just watching yeah. the clock. Um, yeah, but, but but when it yeah. actually cuts over, is that all like automatic? Does yes. anything need to happen? No, it's all automatic. And this is like why this is so hard. Like it would be 10 times easier to shut Ethereum down for a day and restart <laughs> it on proof of stake. Like, and, and seriously, like, you know, like, I don't want to put a percentage on it, but like at least 50, yeah, at least half of the work is caused by like, this has to happen like instantaneously. Huh. Like there's no doubt. It, it, yeah, it, it would be much, much easier to just shut Ethereum down for a day and then restart it under proof of stake. So we really are swapping the engine out mid-flight. That's really yes. what's happening. Yeah, yeah. And this is why there's so much work. Because if you, from the view of a smart contract, imagine you're like a smart contract, you're on the last proof of work block. The next proof of, the next block comes 12 seconds after and is proof of stake, but nothing has like changed from you. Like a small things have around like the difficulty opcodes and whatnot, but it's like, there is no downtime. There's no, for end users sending a transaction, you know, imagine you've sent a transaction five minutes before the merge and it's pending. Like it might get included in the last proof of work block, the first proof of stake block, and there's really no difference. Like the, the network doesn't, doesn't know. And, and, and this is why it's so important is because, you know, so much of this stuff is interconnected. Uh, if we, if we went down for even like 10 minutes, you know, imagine like how it would wreck like DeFi, for example. Um, and, and yeah, that's where the difficulty is. It's just like having this happen without any downtime uh, for applications. Yeah. Right. It's like it's the Indiana Jones swap where you swap on the, the sandbag to take off the, the, the treasure, right? It has to be instantaneous <laughs> yeah. or else bad things happen. Uh, exactly. it, it is nice to see a, a core community of developers prioritize uptime to such a large degree. So I definitely do appreciate that uh, in the uh, DeFi financial system that I envision for us in the future. So Tim... Uh, how long would this all take after all the test nets and the Bellatrix hard fork and deciding the TTD? Like, well, when I talked to Justin Drake at Permissionless and Preston Van Loon, they were like, well, the, uh, the Ice Age is coming in August. And they said that they're pretty bullish on this being able to get done in August. Uh, do you share that August conviction or what, what is your perceived timeline on this whole thing? Yeah, the, the hard thing with timelines is like unknown unknowns, right? It's like, sure, there's a world where like everything goes right and like we merge in August. And, and, but at the same time, if you set that expectation and say we find a weird sync bug on one of these test nets and it takes us two weeks to ship, to, to, to ship a fix, then it's like, well, maybe it's not August and it's September. And if you find two of those, then like, oh, maybe it's not early September, it's like mid September. And if you find like three or four, then it's like, oh, maybe it's like October. And so I think I, I struggle to put like a really precise month just because of that. The thing I am like really confident about is like for it to not happen in 2022, there would have to be like a really terrible thing that happens or like an incredibly unlikely sequence of like medium bad thing. It's like, if you told me, you know, will we find a bug for the merge? I'd say like, sure, there's probably a good chance. Will we find like two bad ones? Like oh, maybe three, that seems unlikely, but it's like, the odds of like finding seven or 10 to me are 
they're tiny, but like, it's, it's not impossible, right? Like it could happen, but it's just very small. Or the odds of something like, I don't know, there's like a massive attack on Ethereum, right? Then we have to literally drop everything for three months and like fix that. Or there's like, I don't know, something in like the real world, like when COVID hit in 2020, right? Like, and, and like things just like go crazy for like three months. So I think like for it to not happen in 2022, something of that scale would have to happen. Either like a huge unlikely string of like medium bad events or like something catastrophic that like hinders her ability to make progress for months. Um, and I think then like, yeah, if you're thinking about like, you know, when can it happen otherwise? It's like, how many hiccups do we hit? And if we hit like none at all, then sure, August probably makes sense. But like, I, I've i disappointed myself with optimistic timelines many times before. So I, you know, I don't want to set the expectation that it happens in August and like we find a sync bug like in July and client teams feel like they can't properly fix that because they need to ship the merge a month later. Um, and so that's, that's really the main thing, why it's hard to make a prediction. But I do think it's like, it's definitely on the order of like a couple months from now and whether it's, you know, two or four or like, I don't know, I guess the worst case would be like five now or something for, for the end of the year. Like that's really a function of like how many issues do we hit? Um, but more than that, there would have to be something really bad that happens and and, um, and this late in the process, I think it's very unlikely that it would be something that has to do with the merge itself. It's almost like a like yeah, event. Yeah, external event or or again like a really unlikely sequence of internal things, but it's Fair. yeah. Well, like I said at the beginning, everyone asks the question when merge, but uh, no one really asks the question, how is the merge doing? And so kind of going back to the whole, like, it's not really a date. It's more of a vibe. Tim, overall, like, how do you, how do you feel? You feel good? Feel- I feel good. Like, I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm really happy about, like, kind team's work. Like, I think, uh, like, yeah, it's, it's going well. There's still some, like, issues we're ironing out here and there, but, like, it definitely feels like, you know, we're not only going downhill from here, but like we're, we're quite far down the hill and, and that's really good. Um, I think I, I'm also pretty optimistic by the fact that like I've spent the past couple of months reaching out a bunch of random projects and asking them to test stuff ad hoc and, and, and like making sure that we don't have any blind spots and stuff. And, and so far, so good there. Um, I think the, the last bit of information is kind of what we talked about first on this call is like, how will home stakers like you know run through this upgrade like are they gonna have a bunch of issues or not and and, and i hope that not and, and i've been spending the past couple of weeks trying to write these blog posts and like or and getting client teams to write explainers about how to upgrade this and and that's something we're going to keep doing um so like that's the the thing i'm probably most focused on right now but overall yeah i think i think it's it's looking really good um i'm i'm, I'm quite happy all right, so uh, maybe maybe two to five months is kind of the, the the time range here. It sounds like, unless something catastrophic or you know a number of small yeah. things go wrong. Yeah, um, two is probably pretty optimistic. So two, we're early June. It's like I think if it was in August, it wouldn't be early August. I think like the quickest is, you know, but I think like yeah. August to December, you can probably quote me on that. I'll, there you I'll go. Take, August to December, we we yeah. intend to quote you on that, Tim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then fair. I'll also say like, you know, we won't ship the merge like past like December. it's like yeah yeah so we got the window there so uh, let's do this tim because um you know to kind of wrap things up we we want to create there's a lot of misconceptions going into the merge we want to lightning round these misconceptions and like turn this into a youtube video so so people can clarify all of the misconceptions and i'm gonna go through five of the top misconceptions I hear about the merge, and then maybe you can add. But let's just reflect on each of these and, and uh, give us the reason that these things are misconceptions and not true. So I'll go through all five. The first one is this. There is a misconception that you can withdraw your staked ETH after the merge. Is that correct or incorrect and why? Uh, it's incorrect. So the merge is basically only the transition to proof of stake, you're going to need another upgrade uh, to have withdrawals. And the reason there is just the merge is already the most complicated change we've ever done to Ethereum. And we wanted to limit it as much as possible to make sure that it goes well. Um, so the upgrade after the merge will have withdrawals and there's already specs being worked on for it. Um, yeah. So if you have staked ETH, guys, what this means is post-merge, it'll still be locked in place. You will not be able to withdraw it, but there will be another upgrade coming down the, the pipeline in the order of, I don't know, 
months are we talking about or years? And that will be another uh, upgrade post post merge, maybe six months time range, six months to a year, something like that. Is that what you expect him? Yeah, basically, that's usually what we what we do. Yeah. Okay, there we go. Uh, the second misconception that we hear so often is that the merge will lower transaction fees. There's a little bit of truth here, but it's just a tiny bit of truth. An Can you tell us about this? Yeah, yeah, basically. Can you tell us about this misconception? Uh, so in short, it, it, it won't basically like uh, proof of work versus proof of stake doesn't change the throughput of the chain. Uh, Ethereum strategy to lower transaction fees is uh, rollups and making it as cheap as possible to use them. And so that'll be a whole other series of upgrades, which is also starting to be worked on. Okay, so the merge will not lower transaction fees, folks. Uh, number three misconception, the merge will lower ETH issuance. Um, actually, that one's not a misconception. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that. that's, that's actually true. Um, so proof of work issuance, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's like 4.7% down to 4.6% or 0.46%. Yeah. Something so, like and the way I, the way I look at it, um, is if you go on ether scan, they have like an issuance chart for mainnet. Um, and there's like four lines in it. There's like proof of work issuance, proof of work uncle issuance, uh, proof uncle rewards issuance, and then the E2 issuance, the beacon chain. And so if, if you look at that, like you can literally remove the three first lines and you just have the the, the proof of stake issuance left. And it's about a 90%, like the proof of stake issuance is about 10% of the total. So it's about a 90% reduction. It varies like on a daily basis, uh, you know, there's some error bars on these numbers, but like, yeah, there is a massive issuance reduction. So putting that in misconception format, some people think that the merge will increase ETH issuance, and it won't. It will decrease no. ETH issuance. Uh, total ETH supply, at least issuance over time, will be decreased over time. Uh, number four, there's a misconception that users' applications will have to do some work to upgrade, maybe click a button and download something. What is that misconception? What will users and applications need to actually do uh, right. post-merge? So assuming, so again, if you not if you run a node or you're a staker or you're an infrastructure provider, like you definitely need to do stuff. Blog.ethereum.org has the whole list. If you're just using Ethereum, like sending transactions or deploying smart contracts, um, basically you need to do nothing. Like everything will keep working as is. Um, the one small thing I'll say for smart contracts is if you, you use the block time uh, or if you use the block number as a like proxy for time, that changes a bit. So like today blocks are about 13 seconds with a lot of variance. After the merge, they're always like a multiple of 12 seconds. Um, so like for some yield farms and like APY products, like that matters because if you calculate like a certain APY over a certain number of blocks after the merge, you're gonna be issuing it slightly quicker. Um, but it's, it's not like a, you don't have to do anything that will just happen. Uh, you should be aware of that. And, and if you want to upgrade your contracts, you, you should. But that's really like the only the only thing that, that can affect how applications work. So if you are a regular everyday normal user not running a uh, ETH node, there's nothing you will have to do. If you're just using MetaMask, continue yeah. just using MetaMask. You don't have to click any buttons. There's no upgrade. Yeah. It will roll over automatically. Yes. Um, the fifth misconception is you can't run a node, an Ethereum node, without staking. So without 32 ETH, uh, for example, can you tell us about why is that a misconception, Tim? Yes. Uh, so there's two types of nodes, right, on the network. There's validators, which are nodes that produce blocks, which are like miners today. To run one of those, you do need to run, uh, you do need to put 32 ETH, um, and every 32 ETH gets you like an extra validator slot. And you can think of it as a lottery, like every block, there's a lottery, and uh, your 32 ETH is like your tickets to like potentially produce the next block. Um, so if you want to do that and be a validator on the network, you, you, you need that capital. If you want to run a node on the network, that's different from being a validator. And what running a node means is you actually verify that the blocks and transactions that these validators create are valid. So validator is like a really bad term because the validator doesn't just verify what they do. All the nodes verify on the network. What the validator does in addition to that is they produce the block. Um, and this is why like an MEV, they call them block producers, not validators. Um, but if you're just a normal user and you want to make sure that 
the blocks that are being propagated on the network and produced by validators are actually correct. And that, for example, you know, a, a staking pool doesn't collude to print itself a bunch of ETH. It is free to do that. So like you can just download, you know, your consensus layer client, your execution layer client and run that. It will sync to the chain. It will verify that the history of that chain, you know, the rules were followed, or at least that there was like strong agreement amongst everybody that the rules were followed and then today you know like once you are synced every new block it will run it and make sure that like every transaction in that block uh meets the rules of the protocol um and that's like really important because the only the kind of biggest uh blocker that we have to validators colluding and changing the rules of the protocols is having a large number of nodes that are run by non-validators who just like act as a check and make sure that they're not changing the rules of the protocol uh, behind closed doors. Um, so if you run a node, you do contribute to the security of the network. Uh, you don't have to put up capital to do it. It's a public good then to run a node, a non-validating node. It's kind of like you know voting in your local elections is sort of a, you know, a public good and a check on power. Yeah, that's correct. Um, Tim, I know you already have a call that started two minutes ago. Uh, thank you so much for coming in between a very busy schedule of your day. The last misconception, you can drop off whenever if you do need to run. The last misconception I'll bring up is that in the post-merge world, the ETH stake rate is going to be something like 15%. Uh, that number has now, well, no one really knows that number, but like new consensus uh, on very, very informed individuals like Polynaya uh, have converged around 7%. Uh, and so the current ETH stake rate uh, is like something around four point something percent uh, is going to go up to seven ish percent, give or take post merge, not in the teens at all. Um, Tim, thank you so much for coming on Bankless and, and giving us all of this clarifying information and allowing us to ask when merge in 50 different ways. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Have a good Bye. one, guys. Bye, Tim. There you go, guys. Uh, some of the misconceptions just to clear up. So um, you can't withdraw your staked ETH after the merge, number one. Uh, the merge will not lower transaction fees. If you've been told that, that's incorrect. Uh, the merge actually will decrease ETH issuance. So if you've heard it's increasing ETH issuance, that is incorrect. Um, users and apps will not have to do anything when they upgrade. You still can, as you can with Ethereum right now, run a node without staking. In fact, it is a public good to run a node because it is a check on power. That is essentially how we're voting in these blockchain systems. And the last one, David, what's that about the ETH stake rate? It's actually more like 7%-ish rather than 13% or so. Does that count? Does, does, is MEV included in that figure, David? MEV is included in that figure. Uh, the 13 to 17% ETH stake rate came on the assumption of a 7 30 block fee to tip uh, ratio uh, in at post EIP 1559 your transaction fee is split into two halves uh, one half is the base fee which people thought was going to be about 70% of the total transaction fee and 30% would be the remainder tip uh, now that EIP 1559 has been live for a while and we have much more data uh, we've noticed that these numbers have converged on 90 10. Uh, so 90% of your transaction fee gets burnt, only 10% goes to the validators. So that brought the uh, e-stake rate down a little bit. And then the other half of the story is that, well, when we first started talking about ultrasound money and the e-stake rate, it was in the middle of DeFi summer when like gas fees were like two to 400 guay consistently. And now instead they're like 20 to 40 guay. So that also brought the e-stake rate down. Uh, and so that went from like these very, very high, high number estimates of something like 13 to 17% down to a much more, much more like kind of logical and reasonable number of 7%. However, that does not mean to say that if the gas fees go back up, the ETH yeah. stake rate would also go back up. I don't even, it's very hard. It's like, I guess what we're doing is we're just picking another point in time and right. crafting a prediction based on the market conditions right now and saying it's lower than 13% because it's a different you know market conditions. But obviously, so many supply demand dynamics go into that rate, including how many validators are, are you know part of the network, right? Mm -hmm. And so this will all fluctuate. But it's likely over the long run that we'll see you know between 4% and then at times into the double digits percent for uh, the ETH stake rate. And that will fluctuate over time as well. Um, the other point is really interesting is so uh, EIP is actually burning more than we thought it is. Mm -hmm. That's still very good for all uh, 
Ethereum holders, of course. So that that value just accrues to anyone who holds ETH rather than just the uh, just the validators. So you know, ninety percent is burnt. It's actually a pretty surprising number to me, but that has certainly been the case with the IP fifteen five nine. David, that is before uh, we should... layer twos start sucking up all the block space, uh, they're only like at three percent now. One day they'll be at thirty percent. One day, Ryan, they'll be at ninety percent, uh, and gas fees will be extremely high. True, true, true. Uh, all right, man. So if we. Uh, we got our answer. I think when merge, we're doing dress rehearsals right now. Right. Merge in you know two to five months or so before the end of the year. <laughs> it's got to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we are close, and David and I will be continuing to sit in the back seat with the Bankless Nation, asking everybody involved when merge, when merge. Uh, as uh, the weeks go by and the months progress. But we are getting very close, folks. Anything else you want to end on, David? The thing I want to end on is if you like this video, the merge will come faster. It's a verifiable fact. <laughs> So if you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and click that like button. I see 420 people watching it, and I only see 141 likes. So y'all got some work to do. And while you're at it, you might as well hit that subscribe button as well. Because if you subscribe to Bankless, you subscribe to when merge updates. Uh, and so every time we ask when merge, you will hear the answer as we get closer and closer and closer to that. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into Bankless. And I guess if you're listening on the podcast, go ahead and give us a five-star review as well. Because again, the more that Bankless hears gets to more ears the more the bull market gets returned to our hands uh, and so i like when you say things there. like this david yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, i'm incented i'm gonna go review this podcast it sounds great uh let's save us from the the bear market risks and disclaimers of course as always guys none of this has been financial advice it's not uh eth merge advice we don't honestly know a date yet but hopefully we will soon eth is risky a of TTD. course we want a ttd a ttd <laughs> as is all of crypto you could definitely lose what you put in but we are headed west this is The Frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.